Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to see you. And uh, Jesus, you are the word of the Father. We pray that you would help us to hear you. We pray that you would help us to preach. We ask it, Lord God, in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit. Amen. A few people have tried it. Nobody has ever managed to get anywhere close to what we got like today. You have to believe you can do these things. It's not like impossible. There's been a few people that have been like sort of following us. It's me, my boots and I, we're gonna make it. I definitely think it's gonna be the next big thing. new sport was not existing before. You have to run very fast on the water. I mean, obviously the first step was the most important one. When we like discovered, oh my God, Jesus, we're going one step, we're going two steps, we're going three steps. It takes actually a lot of practice, a lot of focus. I think if you don't actually believe that you're gonna walk on that water, it's not gonna happen for you. <laughs> I love that video. I mean, these guys have actually like developed these like waterproof shoes and everything. And I mean, it would be really awesome to walk on water, wouldn't it? I think we would all uh, like it. It come come in handy, but except for the guys in that video, some magicians in Vegas, not counting ice. Uh, only Jesus and Peter have ever been recorded as really walking on water. And yet water walking would have come in handy later on in scripture, like in Acts chapter 27, when uh, Paul is shipwrecked. Or maybe for you, like at a party, you know, where you're trying to witness and you could just say, oh yeah, can Buddha do this? And then you just run across the water. I mean, that would really be sweet. Walking on water would be sweet. Yet only once does someone other than Jesus walk on the water. And that's only for like a moment or two. So maybe the point isn't simply walking on water, but walking somewhere else without sinking into something else. You know, the Bible is full of stories of God taking his children for a walk. He has Abraham uh, walk uh, from Ur of the Chaldees uh, through the wilderness to the promised land. And then he has the children of Abraham uh, walk out of Egypt through the wilderness and the Red Sea to the promised land. And, and then he has the Jews get exiled and they're promised to return to the promised land to walk through a wilderness of persecution to a new Jerusalem and an eternal kingdom. Seventy years ago, many of them walked through places like Dachau and and Auschwitz. You know, we have a hard time believing that God is powerful enough or good enough to make us walk on water, but we really have a hard time believing that God could walk us through something like Dachau or Auschwitz. About 12 years ago, I remember sitting uh, at a table at the chart house up on Lookout Mountain with my two very favorite living Christian author speakers, uh, Philip Yancey and Tony Campolo. 
Tony is always trying to get a rise out of somebody, but I remember at some point during the conversation, he, he stopped me, got frustrated with me and said, look, Peter, you, look, you, you just go to Auschwitz like I did. You stand where I did in Auschwitz and you tell me that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And you really had a point. How do you walk through a place like Auschwitz, keep your faith and not sink into hell? How do you walk through a divorce or the death of a loved one or a massive personal failure and not sink into hell? Elie Wiesel was in Auschwitz. One of the most challenging things I, I ever read, I think we read it in philosophy in college or something, was his, it was in his book, Night. In it, he describes an experience in which he was forced to watch the execution of three fellow prisoners. One of them was a young boy that he called the sad little angel. He writes this, the three victims mounted together onto the chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults, but the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence throughout the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. We were weeping. Then the march past began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged, but the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour, he stayed there struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes, and we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. Elie Wiesel lost his faith in Auschwitz, at least for a time. And to lose your faith is to sink into despair, the kind of despair that must have gripped the hearts of those Nazi guards. And so how do you walk on water? Whether it's physical water or the abyss of hell. Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And if, and if you're one of the disciples, I mean, at this point, you got to be thinking, oh man, it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. Next verse, immediately, Jesus literally forced the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Literally, the Greek is tormented by the, by the waves. For the violent wind was against them, and the fourth watch of the night, at midnight, at the fourth watch of the night, midnight, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Literally, he said, courage, I am, fear not. 
And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So, how do you walk on water? I mean, if Scripture is our guide, right, and we say that it's our guide, I mean, from looking at the text, I would say there are seven things that you need. Number one, you need water, right? More specifically, you need stormy water. You need a stormy sea. You know, as soon as the disciples thought, this will be smooth sailing, Jesus literally forced them to get into the boat and sail into a storm without him. I think the modern American church does this tremendous disservice to people when we apply, imply that obedience to Jesus means smooth sailing and never feeling alone. Jesus literally forces them to get into the boat and he commands them to sail into a dark, stormy sea without him. Matthew 8, he, he went with him, remember? We, we preached on that a while ago, and he fell asleep in the boat. He went with them. Now he commands them to go without him, but maybe he can see them from, from the mountain. When night falls, all hell breaks loose. And remember, for the Jews, the sea was hell. It was a realm of chaos and demons and the dead. I suppose that's why they thought that Jesus was a ghost, a phantasma in Greek. They think he's a phantom. You know, Peter's given name is Simon Bar-Jonah. And you remember, uh, that means son of Jonah. And the Bible refers to the belly of the beast in the heart of the sea as Sheol, as hell, that beast that, that swallowed Jonah. According to Scripture, you know, we all live and walk on the skin of hell, for Hades is under our feet. Well, maybe sometimes you feel like you're walking through hell. And you get really confused because you thought I, thought, I thought I was obeying Jesus, obedient. You wonder what's wrong, but maybe what's wrong is really what's right because he's about to teach you to walk on water. Or maybe you think, well, I, Peter, I, I was disobedient. I, I caused the, I'm the cause of the storm. I, I, I sinned. Well, confess your sin. Give it to him. And now it's no longer your storm but his storm, and he's going to teach you to walk on water. So don't worry about storms. To learn to walk on water, number one, you need a stormy sea. And number two, you need a boat. Now, I think this is significant. Jesus walked from shore, but Peter walked from the boat. The boat, did a little research into this, the boat was very likely a Peterbilt. Yeah, you probably wondered where that company came from. But anyway, I think, I think it was a Peterbilt boat, like this first century boat that we saw when we went on a, on a, over to Israel years ago. They found this in the mud of the Sea of Galilee. Well, Peter was a fisherman, and if he didn't build the boat, he built his life, and he built his livelihood around that boat. God has all of us build a boat. 
It's what you can do. It's your accomplishment, your work, your skill, your career. God has each of us build a boat, and then he commands us to sail that boat into chaos. <laughs> In other words, you're born, you build, and then you die. In Christian history, the church is often depicted as a boat. It's depicted as this thing that people build, this thing built with human ingenuity and effort, like an institution or, or a, a building, a building that holds disciples and protects them from the storms of hell. In 2004, I was pastoring in really an absolutely wonderful, brand new $6 million boat. We had three services, a few thousand people attending on a regular basis. And one Sunday, my, after church, my wife told me, Peter, in, in the service, I looked up and, and I saw Jesus, and he was so excited, and, and he, he said to me, are you ready? And disappeared. After church, he said, people came up to me, several different people out of the blue. They said, are you ready? Now, my wife has this gift that I've learned to respect and, and trust. And so when she told me that, I said, ready for what? Are we ready for what? And she said, I don't know. I, I don't know. A few weeks later, she prayed, Jesus, you don't have to tell me, but you asked, are we ready? Well, are we ready for what? She told me that she heard him answer with excitement and with joy. He said, are you ready to get out of the boat? It wasn't long after that that the wind began to blow. I sat in my office one day and I thought, good Lord, I think we're sailing into the perfect storm. Chris and Micah from our prayer team sent me an email saying, Peter, I, I had a dream, and in the dream I saw this wave coming. The wave came, and it washed you right out of the boat. I don't think I was ready to get out of the boat. Well, anyway, you need a storm. That's number one. And number two, you need a boat. And number three, you need failure. Actually, I think that's why you need a boat. That's why you need to build a boat, so they can see the boat fail. The boat was Peter's knowledge, Peter's work, Peter's control. It was literally being tormented by the waves and about to fail. Now, the self cannot fail by trying to fail. For then, the self has succeeded at being a failure, which really isn't failure. In other words, laziness is not the failure of the self. Laziness is the stubborn assertion of the self, perhaps terrified to try because it's terrified to fail. And yet, the self needs to fail. The self needs to build a boat and needs to see it fail. For when we fail, we're ready to see Jesus. So you can't make yourself fail. So don't try. You can't make yourself fail. But, but, but don't worry. God can make you fail. He can send one hell of a storm. See, unless the storm is big enough to sink your boat, you really don't need a savior. And if you think you don't need a savior, you probably won't look for Jesus, and then you probably won't hear Jesus and never step out of the boat and learn to walk on water. So number four, you need to see Jesus. You need to see Jesus. But what does that mean? Because see, I'm not like my wife. I've never ever had a vision I'm a skeptic by nature and a scientist by training. So how do I see Jesus? 
Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Scripture says that God is love, and Jesus is the word of God, the word of love, the logos of love. Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is love. Well, have you ever been in a stormy situation, confusing situation, where, where you think you begin to see the truth? But if you choose the truth, it looks like you'll have to abandon your boat. So the choice is between truth and the boat. Or maybe you see the way of love, the logos of love, and, and if you choose love, it looks like you may sink the boat. A choice between the logic of love and, and the boat. Well, now, what is the logic of love? What is the truth? Well, isn't it the judgment of God? It's Jesus. And what is the boat? Well, the boat is your own judgment. It's the life that you have constructed with your experience, your knowledge uh, that you have taken so that you think to yourself, you know, if I just nail this thing to this wood, I can build a boat, use the boat to save myself from the storm and not sink into hell. That's your boat. You know, people sacrifice truth and love to build their boats and save their boats all the time. But if you sacrifice your boat for truth and love, we'll expect people to think you're crazy. And that's because they think that boats are real. Uh, some actually think that the boats are God, that uh, they think the boats are real, but truth and love are just, well, an illusion, like a phantom. Understand that at first, Jesus will look like a phantom. You know, a lot of folks, including Christian folks, think that love is just a feeling, just a chemical in your brain. And that truth is largely a phantom or an, an illusion. And, and so they'll say things like this, look now, reality, reality is that stormy sea. And so what matters is the boat and building better boats and better churches and better families and better businesses and better governments. And, and, and now please understand me. Nothing's wrong with boats. In fact, God commands us to build boats. It's just that if you idolize boats, you'll never walk on the water, at least not until God sinks your boat. But if you surrender the boat, you won't be in it the day it's finally laid to rest six feet under the surface of the earth in Sheol, Hades. Anyway, we think that our boat is solid and real while truth and love are only phantoms. In verse 27, the disciples crowd in fear, yelling, it's a phantom. And Jesus calls out saying, be of good cheer. Take heart. I am. Now, in Greek, that's a peculiar construction, ego eimi, I am. I am is the name of God. I am is the name of God, and I am speaks all things into existence with his word. Nothing, absolutely nothing, not water, not waves, not boats, nor anything in all creation is more solid or more real than I am. And I am is love. And his word is is truth. I am speaks and creation happens. So Peter calls out, if it's you, command me. Command me into existence. 
Command my faith into existence. Command the new me out onto that water. You know, I don't think angels were impressed in the least that Jesus walked on water. I mean, why would they be? It's the word of God. I don't think they're impressed that Jesus walked on water, but Scripture indicates that they're terribly impressed with faith in people like Peter and how that faith gets into people like Peter. So number four, you need to see Jesus. And oh yeah, I should tell you, he's often standing in the very place that you are most terrified to look. He's standing in hell. Your hell. That's why he sailed you out onto this raging sea in the first place. I think this story is so real to me because for about 15 years, Susan and I routinely prayed for a friend that had been ritually abused since she was a, a little girl. It's really hard for some people to, to believe her story, but I know what I saw time and time and time again. I would usually get a frantic call around midnight when our friend was being tormented by demons, demons that would manifest and seize control of her body. Almost always, the Lord would have us lead her in prayer back to some hellish memory in which he would reveal himself. My wife would usually see the memory that she was having in a vision. And then they would both have the same vision as Jesus would like show up in the vision, show up in that hellish place, show up on that stormy sea. The entire battle was really and quite simply to get our friend just to look at Jesus. For when she saw Jesus in her hell, when she saw Jesus in her suffering, when she saw Jesus in that place, she would hear Jesus, obey Jesus, and the evil one would just lose all his power. I had that experience, I've had that experience with with others on several occasions, but for 15 years on a, on a regular basis with this friend. And so for 15 years, I often found myself walking into hell in the middle of the night, and there I'd meet Jesus. Not in the boat, but out on that sea. And there I saw his glory in hell, my friend's hell. He would reveal his glory. She'd surrender to his glory. The storm would stop. The demons would flee. And he would make all things new. And I will never be the same again. Ten years ago, I went to Auschwitz. It's right after I had spoken at a camp in the Czech Republic. I stood in this gas chamber... I stood in this crematorium. I took this picture. These are thousands of shoes. I remember standing there looking at all the shoes and realizing each one is different. Like each, each person was different. I remember thinking to myself, oh God, thank you. Thank you that this is here, that this memorial is here. Because if they believe that it happened to six million, maybe they'll believe that it happened to my friend and that it happened to you. I walked through these barracks. I remember I crawled up in these bunks that the chosen people of God would sleep in, six to a bunk. I stood in Auschwitz and I remember thinking so clearly, oh, he, he was here. 
He was here. I know he was here. And he even takes his chosen people, people like me, people like you. He takes us to places like this to show us something. The man behind Ellie Wiesel said, where is God now? And a voice within answered, where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. Now, if you're using Koine Greek, the Greek of the Bible, you might say skulon. It's translated gallows, timber, tree, or cross. You understand? God has us walk through this hellish world to show us something. And it's not easy to look at, and, and many find the offense just too much to bear. It is God's chosen one hanging on a tree. It's God's heart suffering for each one of us. He suffered in that Jewish boy. He even suffered in the Nazi guards. He bore the sins and griefs of this entire goddamned world. We're here in this world to see Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because you see, no one gets crucified in heaven. You come to see that here and then it turns into heaven. We must see his sufferings, taste his sufferings in order to share his joy, for sorrow turns into joy. That's what he told his disciples, remember? Your sorrow will turn into joy. Truth in love, crucified upon our tree of knowledge, conquers the powers of hell, makes us in the image of God, and sets us free to walk anywhere on anything, including the head of the ancient serpent. The angels were just unimpressed, I think, that Jesus could walk in water. But all creation will never cease to be impressed at the slaughtered lamb standing on the throne of God, having triumphed over all the powers of hell. Number four, we need to see Jesus. Number five, we need to hear Jesus. As Jesus hangs on the tree in our hell, he cries out, Father, forgive them. Who's them? It's got to be those Romans that pounded the nails, right? And Jews like Judas who betrayed him. Well, and Nazis and you and me, all of us sinners. He cries, Father, forgive them. And he had already said, come to me and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. Well, 10 years ago, what had at one time seemed only to be a, a phantom to me became more solid than my boat. That is, I saw that Jesus was outside of the boat. And not just outside of the boat, but he had like descended into hell to set the captives free. For when he said, Father, forgive them, he didn't mean only the people in the boat because there really was no boat at that time. He meant all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve. He meant Roman centurions. He meant Nazi guards. He meant me. He meant unbelievers like Elie Wiesel, even people that had sunk beneath the waves for he came to seek and to save the perish. They're the apollolos, the, the lost. I saw that Jesus is not stuck in the boat. He's not stuck in the walls of some institution. 
Jesus is not limited by what the institutional church can or cannot do. Jesus is not the property of the boat. The boat is the property of Jesus. Jesus is not limited to the confines or walls of any boat. And that is absolutely wonderful news. Unless, of course, you're in the business of buying and selling boats. Seven years ago, the institutional church said to me, Peter, you must confess that you believe there's a group of people that cannot be saved. And I felt Jesus asking me, so Peter, will you do it? Will you, will you choose the truth? Not just some theological proposition out there, but, you know, the truth in your heart, Peter. In other words, will, will you be honest? Will you choose the truth or the boat? And you have all been in that situation time and time and time again. God asks, will you choose your judgment the way you think you hold your life together, your success, your honor, your glory, your pride, your control? Will you choose your judgment or my judgment because his name is Jesus? Choose Jesus, because Jesus has chosen you. That's why you hear him calling through the wind, across the waves. Number five, you need to listen to Jesus. And number six, you need to get out of the boat. When he calls, when he calls. In other words, don't leave your church, close your business, abandon your family. Don't abandon the boat unless you hear him calling out on the waves. Remember, he likes boats. Let me say that again. He really, I think he, he really likes boats. He slept in this boat. Matthew chapter 8, we read about that. He's preached to the crowds from Peter's boat, Luke chapter 5. He'll command Peter to catch fish from this boat in John 21. And after he's walked for a while on the water with Peter, he'll get back in the boat. He likes boats. He just doesn't want you to worship boats. And he's not limited to boats. Actually, his people are the boat, the real boat, the true boat, not the institutional church, but his body, the church. And maybe that's why the church is most vibrant in places where big institutional boats are illegal. The church really isn't a boat. She's a body walking on the water. Well, in 2007, I got out of the boat. Or maybe I was washed out of the boat. I'm, I'm not sure. Many of you were as well. And now the sanctuary is a boat. It's a smaller boat. And this boat can go places that the old boat could not go. God loves this boat. I really think he wants us to care for this boat because I think he wants us to sail this boat where other boats will not sail. To go like bowling, go where no boat has gone before, if need be, this, this boat. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful for Kimberly Wainan, our program director, who helps hold us together and coordinate us and keep us connected. And I'm grateful for Francis Forjoni, who's uh, back east this week, but our congregational care person that helps care for all those that work on the boat. You can clap for all of them. And for Michael and the worship team that help hoist the sail into the wind and power the boat. And for Dee Dee Rinky, who manages all of our provisions. And for Susan, who cleans the boat in all kinds of ways. We even cleans the, the captain. Angie and Lori, 
who nurture our youngest sailors and our, and our board of directors and our deacons and our committees and our groups. We need to care for this boat. And I believe that I'm called to captain the boat, but I also believe that I'm called to get out of the boat. And I believe that you are called to get out of the boat. I mean, we're supposed to walk the message of God's relentless grace out onto the sea and right into the gates of hell. And that's why I'm excited about you going to work tomorrow. And I'm excited about you going to school tomorrow, where it is, wherever it is that you go tomorrow, walking into your storm, believing that God is better than you thought, the love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. I'm excited about Downside Up, that this little boat is pumping out films that really are washed by thousands of people taking the message beyond the walls of this boat. And I'm excited that the board is talking about sending me and the message on little walks beyond these walls that walk and come back, walk and, and come back. Well, you see, this is a boat. And you each have a boat. And you built the boat. Number six is get out of the boat. And number seven, how to walk on water, number seven is don't think about walking on water. In other words, don't think about the storm. Don't think about the boat. Don't think about your failure. Don't even think about your ability to see Jesus or your ability to hear Jesus. Don't even think about stepping out of the boat. Just think about Jesus, the Jesus that you know, the truth that you know. The love that has been revealed to you, that you see. D did you notice that Peter walked on water when he forgot about the water? In fact, I think that Peter forgot about himself. He lost himself for a moment thinking about Jesus. He was like intoxicated with Jesus. Peter walked on water, number seven, when he stopped trying to walk on water. <laughs> I spent so much time trying to walk on water. Peter walked on water when he stopped trying to walk on water and he just got so excited about Jesus. You'll walk on water once your heart is set on Jesus. If I've ever walked on water, I imagine it was one of those nights praying for my friend because I'm telling you, nothing is quite as glorious as seeing Jesus show up in hell. And maybe I've walked once in a while when, when I preach. You know, I feel deadly, death dreadfully <laughs> inadequate. As a pastor, I think I'm a poor manager. Sometimes I feel entirely overwhelmed and completely inept. Sermon preparation often feels like, like hell. <laughs> but then I'll catch a glimpse of Jesus. I'll see Jesus. And for a moment, I'll, I'll lose myself in him. Or maybe for a lot of moments, I'll lose myself in him. And then I'll find myself in him. I'll find myself walking on the water, which often makes me sink. Because I think, hey, I'm walking on the water. Holy crap, I can't walk on water. Well, maybe you should stop trying to make your marriage work. Maybe you should stop trying to make your kids work. 
Maybe you should stop trying to make your work work, your job work. Maybe you should stop trying to make your life work and just worship Jesus. Go to Jesus. You'll find him in your kids. You'll find him in your husband. You'll find him in your wife. You'll find him in your, your work. And then you'll find him in yourself and yourself walking on water. But don't get distracted by that. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you're like me, you, you may say, yeah, okay, yeah, great. I, I see that. Yeah, 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 but, but, yeah, but, 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 but what if I fail? I mean, what if the sanctuary fails? What if downside up fails? What if it, it all falls apart? What if I fail? Yeah! Well, Peter failed. And yet only Peter didn't fail. Did you notice that? For a moment. Only Peter got out of the boat. In other words, we all have already failed. We exist in failure. So if you step out of the boat, you have nothing to lose except your illusion of success. Actually, the disciples most in bondage to the power of hell in our story are still sitting in the boat. It's true that Peter sunk when he saw the wind and the waves, but once he saw his own failure, he also saw something else, and that was Jesus' success. Peter cried out, Lord, save. And you know the name Jesus literally means the Lord is salvation. Jesus pulled him out of the sea. Peter failed, and love does not fail. Jesus pulled Peter out of the sea. They got in the boat. The storm stopped. They all worshiped Jesus, and that's what God the Father wants, and that's how you walk on water. Michael told me that his son Oliver is learning to walk. And he can do it if he fixes his eyes on the face of his father. But if he gets distracted, he falls. And when he falls, you know what Michael does? He picks him up. A few months ago during our worship service, my friend Kristen said she heard something, this one that saw the wave years ago. She said, she said, I heard the Holy Spirit say this. Number one, Jesus loved Peter when he was walking on the water. Number two, Jesus loved Peter the same when he was drowning. Number three, Jesus loved those that watched the same as he loved Peter. See, it's when little Oliver Bennett fixes his eyes on the unconditional love of his father that he can walk. One day, Elie Wiesel will see that God the Father was there in Auschwitz, that he really was there in that sad-eyed little angel boy, and there in Jesus, whom we all nailed to the wood. And when he truly sees the glory of the Father shining in the face of Jesus Christ the Son, if he hasn't already, he will come running to him through the wind and on top of the waves. According to Scripture, Peter failed. <laughs> Read the Bible over and over and over again. And Jesus picked him up. And Peter became the first bishop of the church. It was like he built that boat. According to church history, persecution grow, broke out against the church, the church in Rome, where Peter was at the time in 64 AD. Along with his brethren, he fled the city to save his life. For how can you lead a church and, and lose your life, right? Well, on the way out of the city, 
running down the Appian Way, according to legend, he had a vision of Jesus walking the other way. When Peter saw me drop to his knees, and he said this, Lord, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered Peter, saying, Peter, I'm going to Rome to be crucified. And at that, Peter turned around immediately, ran back into Rome where he was crucified upside down with Jesus. And Jesus built his church upon Peter. Peter died with Jesus and rose with Jesus, and all the powers of hell cannot touch Peter. He walks on water, and so will you. Just look. On the night that he was betrayed, as the storm raged, actually the storm raged more intensely than it ever had or it ever will. As the storm raged, he took bread and he broke it saying, look, see this? This is my body. At this time, this place, in this world, out on this sea, look, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see it? Drink it, all of you. Eat it. Drink it. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, the author of our faith, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, and you will walk on water. And so I think he's calling to you. Come down here, tear off a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. The dark cup is wine. The, the light cup is juice. Walk down here. Take his body and his blood. And hey, Hebrews says this. It saved, we're saved by the power of an indestructible life. Take a piece of the indestructible life and drop it into your life. It won't sink. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and worship. Remember I told you that you were born into this world to see something, and that something is Jesus. And what is it that he wants to show you? Well, it's not that he can walk on water. I think that's, I think the evil one would tell us that at times. Oh, he just wants to show you how cool he is. He can walk on water, and he can turn water into wine. He can do all kinds of tricks. But what is it that he wants to show you? He wants to show you this. This is how much the Father loves you. This is how much 
I love you. This is to the extent that the Spirit will go. The Spirit is unbounded, and the Spirit is pursuing you, and the Spirit loves you. This is the love of God for you. This is unconditional love shining in the face of Jesus Christ the Lord. See me? Now, come on. Walk to me. Believe the gospel and walk the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.